Tumors are abnormal masses of tissue that form when cells grow and divide more than they should. All tumors begin when one or more genes in a cell mutate. These mutations can arise after extensive exposure to external agents. For example, one such agent is the ultraviolet light in sunshine that causes mutations in skin cells, while tobacco-derived chemicals cause mutations in the esophagus of smokers. However, these tissues can continue to look and function normally despite accumulating a large proportion of cells that are carrying mutations that might promote cancer formation. So how do these mutations happen? Why do normal cells eventually turn into tumors? And can we find a way to stop normal cells from turning into tumors? In order to uncover the processes that shape the evolution of a single mutated cell into a tumor, we need to understand the rules that govern cell dynamics in normal, healthy tissue. Understanding the processes that restrain mutant cells from developing into tumors and how they are breached when tumors do form will guide the development of strategies to reduce the chance of cancer development. You also think this sounds like a really interesting topic? Then stay tuned and we will talk about this and much more in today's episode. I'm Mehdi Jorfi. And I'm Leila Siraj, and you're listening to a new episode of Science Rehashed. Our show is available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Please subscribe and refer our podcast to your friends. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Or you can visit our website at sciencerehashed.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please give us your comments and feedback through our website, and let's chat. And get to know our talented multinational team by following us on Instagram at science, no space, rehashed, as we walk through our day-to-day -day tasks in an Instagram takeover and more. Our interests go far beyond science, from illustration to bike riding and much more. After a short break, we are finally back with a new Rehashing Science episode, and I am really excited about our guest. We interviewed Philip Jones, a professor of cancer development at the University of Cambridge, UK. Today, he will tell us about his recent study on how normal cell behavior is altered by mutation in the earliest stage of cancer development. But before introducing our guest, I would love to introduce our fabulous new co-host. Hi, Leila. Welcome to Science Rehashed. Hi, Mehdi, and hi, listeners. My name is Leila Siraj, and I'm a Harvard MIT MD PhD student currently studying gene regulatory networks. I'm really interested in complex disease and dynamic systems. I'm also passionate about mentorship and access in science and medicine, which have been the focus of my startup. Out of the lab, I love poetry, tea, and figure skating. I can't wait to co-host my first episode, and I'm so excited for the science and discussion ahead. 
Hi, listeners. I hope you are enjoying our episodes. If you want to tell us your thoughts, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review to let us know what you think about Science Rehashed. Listeners, if you also want to ask questions during our next episodes, don't forget to post them on Twitter at Science Rehashed on one of our next interview tweets. But now, let's introduce our guest. Welcome to Science Rehash, Dr. Jones. Thank you for being with us today. And I'd like to start this interview by you briefly introducing yourself to our listeners. So I'm Phil Jones, and I am both a clinician and a scientist, and I do a lot more science than time in the clinic these days. I've been interested for many years in understanding um, stem cells, particularly those that live in the skin, and more recently, in the esophagus, that's the tube between your mouth and your stomach. And I'm interested really in understanding how those turn from happy, normal stem cells into stem cells that start to behave out of control and eventually turn into tumors. Fascinating. Can you talk more about the process that makes normal cells turn into tumors and how you studied these processes? That process of going from normality into Cancer is driven by mutations, changes in our DNA, and we've gone on quite a long journey with this. So the first, if you like, 10 years, which was a a long and pain of this long, painful quest, was to try and really understand the rules of normal cell behavior. And that's kind of challenging to work out in a human. So we went to look at mice and we worked out a method to work out how cells behave in a normal tissue. This might sound a bit dull, but it's terribly important to work out normal if you want to know what abnormal looks like. So the way we did that was to label normal cells with a gene that we turned on in adult mice. And then that gene was a fluorescent protein so we could track the cell we labelled and its daughters and their daughters. We couldn't do this with live imaging at the time because that hadn't developed enough, but we let the animals age for a number of months and then sacrificed the animal, took the tissues, counted lots and lots of these little clumps of labelled cells. And because, in fact, it turns out the rules of cell behaviour are very simple, you can do some statistics on it and you can work out how cells are behaving turns out cells play dice. The rules of the dice game are very simple. And on average, when a cell divides, half of its daughters go on to divide, half of its daughters stop dividing, and then eventually leave the tissue and fall off. And when they fall off, they end up being dust in your room, and they are what litters your living space. Or in the case of the esophagus, they end up leaving your body through your poo. That's the way it goes. And For all of your dividing tissues in your body, it better be true that you make the same number of cells that you lose. And if you zoom down now to the the layer of cells that you've got where all the division takes place, it better be true that on average, each division produces one dividing daughter and one non-dividing daughter. And if you break that beautiful balance, you're either going to run out of cells if you make too few dividing cells. That's an ulcer. It's a whole tissue failure. Or if you get the balance just slightly wrong the other way, you'll end up with a lump, with a tumor. So just to recap, our cells have mother and daughter cells. The mother cells are called stem cells and have the potential to form new cells. Stem cells also allow wounds to heal and let our tissues regenerate. Before discussing their role in tumors, I would love to know how do we define normal stem cells? 
So normal is uh, a beautifully balanced state where across a population of dividing cells in the skin and the esophagus, across thousands of cells, you balance the odds of producing dividing and non-dividing daughters. So you produce 50% dividing and 50% non-dividing, what we call differentiating cells, cells designed mm -hmm. to, that will eventually be lost from the tissue across thousands of cell divisions. And how you achieve that balance, we do not know. To this day, we do not know. But if you want it in a bit more detail, imagine a game of dice. If you throw a one, you have two daughters that will go on to divide. If you throw a six, you have two daughters that will stop dividing and both will leave the dividing compartment in the tissue. If you throw a two to a five, one daughter will divide, go on to divide, and one daughter will stop dividing. So that's the, that's the it's, it's kind of pretty close to the real thing. And play that game of dice across thousands of cells, on average, half will divide and half won't divide. Those rules, if you play them out, mathematically, you come up with something called gambler's ruin or neutral drift or a birth death process, depending on which branch of math you happen to hang out in. So statisticians call it gambler's ruin. If you play the casino at equal odds, you will eventually lose. Many people might not know that cell mutations, similar to those leading to cancer, are frequent in adult humans. These mutations are caused by external agents like ultraviolet light and sunshine, for example, that can cause mutations on skin cells. These tissues can then continue to look and function totally normally, despite accumulating a large proportion of cells that are carrying mutations. Could you explain to us how this is possible? So think of a, of a stem cell that picks up a mutation a change in its DNA that doesn't do anything to its behavior. So it's just a letter change in its DNA. It doesn't change the behavior. Most times, that cell and its daughters will be lost from the tissue within a few throws of the dice because all of the cells will eventually, you know, you'll eventually throw enough sixes that that little clump of cells will be lost. But occasionally, very occasionally, that little clump of cells will get bigger and bigger. And then for all of the cells in that clone, that group of cells carrying that little mark to be lost. The number of sixes you have to throw is quite large and that clone will hang out and you'll get um, a clone that will persist in the tissue. So that's maybe a bit techie, but that's how it works. And is this process totally random or does it follow some sort of evolutionary driven mechanism? For a mutation that doesn't do anything, the game just carries on and actually What's really good about the way that our tissues have evolved to play this game is that most changes in our DNA don't change cell behavior. And because the population of cells is doing this game, we throw out most DNA damage simply by cells being shed. So for most genes, to break the function of the gene, you need not just to, remember you've got two copies of most genes in your genome, right? So you've got two strands of DNA twined around each other, that lovely double helix. You've got two copies of a gene. You need to break both copies for most genes for stuff to happen. So you can break one copy, but then as I said, nothing happens most of the time and a clump of cells carrying that altered copy of that gene, most times they'll be lost from the tissue before you get lose the other one. 
wonderful. You, because of this dice game, you're losing most of the damage within the tissue before you get trouble. So this game of dice is protecting the genomes of our cells in the skin and the esophagus and the similar tissues that work like that. And it's actually a really good thing because we pick up a lot of damage over our lifetimes and we're throwing most of that damage away. So the next time you use your hoover to clear up your room, be very grateful that you've got all that dust with all that damage in it because you've thrown all those defective mutant cells away just by playing dice. So that works really well. And, you know, forget the math, but actually this is a good game of dice to be playing. If you're enjoying the show and want to help us keep making content, please consider becoming one of our patrons on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com slash join slash science rehash to become a patron for just $3 a month. Or you can become a VIP patron for just $5 a month. Our first 10 VIP patrons will receive a free Science Rehash water bottle. That's patreon.com slash join slash science rehash to join. Dr. Jones, your studies reveal that a single population of progenitors diligently follows this dice rule where progenitor cell division either generates two progenitor daughters, two non-dividing differentiated cells, or one progenitor and one differentiating cell. In homeostasis, the probabilities of producing the two progenitors and the two differentiating daughters are the same, so that on average, equal numbers of progenitors and differentiating cells are produced. What happens when the system falls out of homeostasis? I'm thinking of when an injury happens, for example. So then what happens is the cells next door to that injury have to stop playing their normal game of dice. Suddenly, they have to make a ton more cells, right? So they change the rules of the dice game. And suddenly, if they throw one, two, three, four, or five, they're producing two dividing daughters. And they carry on producing a ton more dividing cells until they fix the wound. And then they drop back into normal maintenance mode and go back into the normal rules of the dice game. So that process is quick, and all of the cells participate in it. It's a very egalitarian society. Everyone drops everything and fixes the injury. Great. So that's lovely and really good, but it creates a vulnerability. The ability to change the rules of the dice game is also something that can be exploited by mutations. Because the same pathways, the same genes that control that wound healing Ability. Now you mess with those, you start mutating those, and then you could start changing the rules of the dice game, and that could lead you to trouble. So the ability of progenitors to produce excess progenitor daughters for wound repair represent a potential vulnerability. How did you go about studying these mechanisms? That was the next step in our experimental journey. So we took just single scattered cells. We mutated about one in a thousand cells in the mouse esophagus with a gene that's one of the genes involved in controlling this balance of division. And it was staggering. So suddenly, if you run the normal experiment, you start off with 1% of cells labeled. And it's really boring because a year later, you've got 1% of cells labeled. And you've counted thousands of little clones, and it's a lot of work, and you still end up with 1%, so it's just flat lines. This time, you rock it up, and by a year later, you've got 100% mutant cells. They have taken everything over. Dramatic change. And how long that does it take? 
Well, it kind of explodes initially and then it grows ever slower until you've taken over the entire tissue. And of course, what we then thought is, you know, once we got out to a year, of course, all these mice will then die of cancer. And of course, what happened is they were absolutely fine and none of them got any tumours at all. This was astonishing. And in fact, what happens is you get explosive growth. And the reason is that you get the explosive growth is the rules of the dice game change. So you no longer get the throw for the six. You no longer get the six being that you get two daughters that don't divide. And that's instant immortality for the mutant clone. It can't be lost from the tissue and it just grows. But suddenly you reach a point where all of your neighbours and their neighbours are mutant. And then once that starts to happen, you revert back to normal dice game rules. And so the phenotype, the behaviour of the cells changes depending on your neighbours. And that's how you can take the whole tissue over and still it looks normal. Now, this really matters because, as we found out a few years later, this is what's happening in us. But you can look at a whole bunch of genes, and we, you know, over the next last few years, we've shown this. So you can take your favorite cancer related gene. So there's a bad boy gene called P53. This gene grows out of balance, then returns back to balance. So the tissue can just deal with it. It deals with clones that grow explosively. They return back to homeostasis, to balance, to normality. And the tissue looks basically normal. This is extraordinary. Can't tell you quite how it works. It's just a thing. As our listeners may know, tissues are organized communities of cells that work together to carry out a specific task. The type of cells a tissue contains determines the tissue's function. Multiple cell types within a tissue may have different functions, transcriptional programs, and even divide at different rates. You've been working mainly with skin and esophagus. Can you tell us why you're interested in these types of tissues? The thing I like about the skin and the esophagus is if we ignore things like hair follicles, which other people are very passionate about, they're just sheets of cells. There's like cell divisions down in the bottommost layer. Then you've got a layer, layers above that where there's no cell division. And then there's a surface and cells stop dividing, move up through the layers, get to the surface and fall off just like they're walking up a staircase. That's all they are. And the mouse esophagus is a beautiful three centimetres of totally boring flat sheets of cells stacked on top of each other, division at the bottom, move up to the top, fall off. How beautiful is that? If you want to track cells, work out the rules of cell behaviour, you know, there is nothing more beautiful than that. This very uniformity is what, why we love the tissues. Everything I've told you is about tissues that look totally normal. So these mutants explode, colonize, take over, and the tissue looks just the same. Any abnormalities are very subtle. And the really scary thing is you can get a mutant like the notch mutant or P53 or PI3 kinase taking over large chunks of the tissue and you wouldn't know. So every cell division rate, you might get 2%. And it is literally that small. It's 1% or 2% more dividing daughters than non-dividing daughters. And that would enable a clone to grow. That's how it goes. So these subtle imbalances are sufficient. And what is the best feature of these tissues? What's good about the skin and the esophagus? One kind of cell, the keratinocyte. We think we've only got one kind of dividing cell. All the dividing cells are functionally equivalent. They have a very simple set of rules. We know what they are. We've worked it out. So I'm not saying it's perfect, but you can write down a, an equation 
fairly simple equation, that to a first approximation captures cell behavior and it will predict what the behavior of a population of cells will be in a year's time and you get the right answer. You can put a drug into that system, predict what the behavior of the clones would be in six months time, it gets the right answer. And I don't know many, cell, many systems where you can do that, but you can do it in the skin and esophagus. And that's remarkable. And Dr. Jones, where did your interest in cancer, especially stem cells and the boring esophageal tissue came from? Well, it probably comes from different places. So a very, very long time ago, I do remember treating patients. I particularly remember one patient who had a horrible head and neck cancer and we could mm. not control it. And I don't think I've ever shared this story before, actually, but, but she had uncontrollable pain and she'd had a maximum dose of radiotherapy and she was crying with pain and we could not control it with opiates. And I just thought, well, if I could do anything for that, it would be worth it. So that kind of made me interested in those sorts of tumors because they were hideous and they still are uncontrolled. And neck cancer is awful. Now, I have to say, with a great deal more we can do for it now, none of that progress due to me, I would hasten to add. But wonderful progress with things like immunotherapy and giving chemotherapy and radiation together. But then my real journey started when I did my PhD with a wonderful scientist called Fiona Watt in London. And she sort of said to me, hey, you're a medic. You don't really, you've, got, you don't, you've got a day job. Go and do this impossible problem to work on looking at human skin stem cells. Now, I'm not sure that we framed the problem right, but we set out and we thought we'd found human skin stem cells. And some people think we did, and I'm not sure we did. But anyway, we thought we'd solve this problem, and it was very exciting. And that made me fall in love with this very simple tissue. And then about 10 years later, mouse technology came along, and it suddenly became possible to start not looking at growing human cells in dishes, which was an artifact of colossal proportions, but actually maybe it became possible to track cells in, a, in tissues in a mouse. I was interested in the simplest possible way to track cell behavior so the mouse doesn't know it, the cell doesn't know it, the tissue doesn't realize it. Completely non-biased intervention. Because you did all of this work in figuring out what the normal tissue looks like and understanding these normal rates, that enables you then to do this sort of math of figuring out what's going on. Yeah, so the math works really well for normal, but the further you go from normal, but you end up with impossibly wide uncertainties. So you can always build a model, but the chances of that model being true get, you know, more and more intangible. And you can always add another parameter to the model and it will fit. But of course, any old model could fit. So simple is always better. But I'm not really here to talk about modeling. I want to talk about, can I talk about humans? Yes, I think we're ready for the humans now. Can you walk us through your research in human tissue? We talked about this funny old mouse that we made with this funny mutant that inhibited notch signaling and took the whole esophagus mm -hmm. over. So the next step, and I very well remember this, was to think, well, how on earth could we find mutants in human tissues? Because they should be there, right? Because we know we've got cancers in human skin. In fact, human skin is, you know, the, there's a tidal wave of human skin cancer, particularly in people who are pallid and sunburn easy, easily. So you're kind of red, you know, Scandinavian, because I'm from the far north populations, 
who have red hair and sunburn easily. These, this kind of um, people with that genotype just get tons of skin cancers as they get older. And the people with a, with a sort of equatorial genotype will have much lower skin cancer risk. But where are all the mutations that are causing that huge amount of skin cancer? They've got to be in the normal tissue, surely. And these, these cancers don't just come from nowhere. So where are they? And I sort of figured out that if you could cut out little bits of skin and sequence them very deeply with next generation sequencing, so imagine like you have a little bit of skin and 5% is a P53 clone of that little bit, then 5% of the reads from your next generation sequencer of P53 should have that mutation in them, right? But not really. And it was the sort of idea where if I just kept it to myself in my office, it would have gone nowhere. So I thought, well, let's be big and brave. So I went to talk to the guys at the Sanger, particularly Mike Stratton and Peter Campbell, and they were really excited about this because I showed them the mouse model stuff I talked about, and they, they were just blown away by that. The idea that you could have these mutations taking over normal tissues was new to them. And we got together in a collaboration, and we started with eyelids because you can get hold of eyelids because when you get older, if you get very saggy eyelids, then the nice plastic surgeon comes and removes the saggy bit so you can see out. And we took some of the excess saggy skin and we cut it into very small pieces. And then the Sanger Institute did very deep sequencing for particular genes. And they found that there were lots and lots of mutant clones in normal human island skin. This is totally normal skin in people who've never had cancer, middle-aged humans, right? And about a quarter of normal human eyelid skin has cancer-associated mutations in P53, NOT genes, other genes linked with cancer. And this was very surprising. And then you repeated the same study in the esophagus. You'd think that because your skin is exposed to ultraviolet light, which is a fantastic mutator of DNA, that there'd be far fewer mutations in the esophagus, but not so. There are far more. Basically, by the time you're about 50, half of your esophagus has no notch one in it at all. Because what happens is you lose one copy of notch one. Is this a bad thing? No, it's not because actually notch one is protective against cancer, I think, because the rate of notch one mutations in cancer is around 5%. If in normal esophagus it's over 50%, that implies notch one mutation protects against cancer. On the other hand, P53, which is a very bad gene because it's in all of the cancers pretty much, that's kind of rolling along 5%, then 10%, and 15%. The key with P53 is if you lose the second copy, something we see very rarely, that's the passport to get cancer. So we discover an entire landscape, a patchwork of mutations, and all of our normal skin and esophagus are a war zone of fighting clones. Dr. Jones, could you briefly summarize how these mechanisms of fighting clones works? Clones fight for space. The mutations that we see are under very strong competitive selection. Something you can work out, you know, there's a metric that we use in evolutionary genetics, 
if you have more protein altering than silent mutations in a gene, that means it's under strong positive selection. We find a bunch of genes, probably no more than 15 to 20 in the skin and esophagus, that are very strongly selected. Those clones can expand sideways because of the structure of the tissue. There's nothing to stop them till they collide with the clone next door. When they collide with the clone next door, they can go back to uh, normal if that clone is equally fit. Otherwise, they smash out the clone next door and carry on growing. That's how it works. Clones can be millimetres to centimetres sometimes in size, and they take over the entire space by the time you're old in totally normal-looking tissue. This is fascinating regarding how cell mutation related to the ageing does it mean that we all have some sort of uh, cancer potential? Yes, we do, because cancer rate incidence goes up with the seventh power of age, roughly. That's just straightforward epidemiology. We know that. What I would say, though, is you accumulate not any mutation, but in our tissues, the mutations that we stack up are the ones that where are the mutations that specifically alter cell behavior. And that's a very, very small number of genes, right? So the mutations that win out are the ones that alter the rules of the dice game. And they tend to be the ones that alter the rules of the dice game in one hit. Because remember I said about this dice game that it's very hard to hang around for long enough to get both copies of the gene disabled. So the winners in the dice game, you have to get alter behavior with one letter change in your DNA, right? So there's what the geneticist called haploinsufficiency or you change one letter and you get either an alteration in protein function that takes out the other allele or it makes the gene more active. So one letter change alters the function of the protein and changes cell behavior. Those are the winners in this battleground, this constant fight for space between clones. And it really is an evolutionary slugfest going on in all of our skin and esophagus all the time and it's survival of the fittest and you're leveling up this competitive landscape as you get older and older you know as you get older you get more mutations more mutations equals bad equals more cancer risk very naive mm -hmm. of me and actually totally wrong because some mutations are very good at colonizing normal tissues and have nothing to do with cancer at all. Some mutations are very good at colonizing normal tissues and protect against cancer. That's like notch one in the esophagus. And some mutations are quite good at colonizing normal tissues like P53 and are bad for cancer. There is no simple way to look at this hideous patchwork of mutations that is going to be all of us when we get old in our totally normal looking skin and esophagus and predict cancer risk in a straightforward way. Can't be done, I think, at the moment. So spreading and occupying a bigger percentage of the tissue does not necessarily mean a tumor is growing. In fact, the opposite might be true. Could you tell us more about the interaction between this fighting clone mechanism and abnormal tumor growth? These clones are constantly colliding. They're very competitively fit, if you like. They want to occupy space. Now imagine a baby tumor trying to grow in this very aggressive landscape. You know, it's a bit like a couple of people get together in a very crowded room and they want to spread out and nobody else wants to let them. They start getting punched and kicked by the surrounding people. That's what's happening to a baby tumor. And 
what we found is that many tumours are born, very small tumours are born, and most of them are lost within a couple of months. And that process of loss is mostly not due to the immune system. It's not due to cell death. It's not due to running out of dividing cells. It's due to clones strangling, kicking out of the tissue, baby tumours. And we did the experiment with this notch mutant I talked about, and that is very good at killing tumours. So those really strong competitive clones in our normal tissues are removing potentially early tumours in a way that I had no idea they would, but that seems to be happening. And this is all happening in a mouse model. Does this happen in human tissues as well? Hey, it's a mouse model. Does that happen in normal human tissues? I have no idea. Can I prove it to you? No, I can't. But it's an interesting concept. And it shows you that there's a dynamic battle going on in normal-looking tissues all the time. And it could be, and I think we need to revisit our view of aging tissues as an evolutionary, you know, laboratory and battleground. And whatever they are, they, they might have started off pristine and, and normal when you were a baby with only a few mutations in them. Now they are a very mutated battleground. And those mutations which are there matter because they're mutations that alter cell <laughs> behavior. And those mutations can kill tumors and give rise to tumors. And some of them will be bad, but many of them won't be. So this seems to be a new, almost protective mechanism for cancer in the body, right, that we hadn't really discussed before. What can you explain to us what the previous prevailing theories were and how this theory of competition and self-fitness in this patchwork landscape of mutations uh, sort of changes that? I, I wouldn't be so pretentious as to tell you what the old <laughs> theory was, really. So what we've been able to do before really well is we've had this huge project around the world plus decades of theory going back from very smart people right back to the 1950s have predicted this, this, this origin of cancer from a single bunch of cells that picked up more and more mutations over time. And then the enormous global cooperative effort to sequence cancer genomes that has recently been definitively published over the last couple of years has let people do genome archaeology, if you like. So you can go, you can infer backwards in time and you can say, well, these cancers come from a single bunch of cells maybe decades ago that were hanging out in normal tissue. And they've picked up, you know, one, two, three, four different mutations and some alterations in the structure of the genome. So if you like, the, the mutations are single letter errors on your Word document, and then you've got cut paste errors and you know, extra pages chucked in, etc. All of that's been going on. And that's happened within a single clone. And then there's an explosion of growth, and it's all got much worse. That's the development of cancer. But the early stages have been going on over years. But what we're now learning, and I say the we, it's not just our group, but many other people around the world are making this very exciting journey into this, you know, new world of mutations and normal tissues is what's happening to the other clones. So if you think of how many mutant, mutant, mutant clones there are in a one centimetre of normal skin, and the odds of one centimetre of normal skin getting a cancer are infinitesimal, tiny, tiny. 
So for over your body, the chances of a clone of even a P53 mutant turning into a cancer must be billions to one. It's, you've got this huge, what statistician called survivor bias. You know, we see the cancers, that's one clone. We miss out on the billions of other clones, which are mutants, that didn't get into cancer. And the things like this editing of tumours by the surrounding clones, we're never going to see if we only look at the winning cancer clone. Things like the fact that, you know, we, we've studied the mutations in cancer, but if you don't look at the mutations in the normal tissue, you don't know... I mean, it's like people have thought that Notch was a cancer driver gene, failing to appreciate that Notch is much more common in normal tissue than it is in cancer. So you won't realise it's a cancer protective gene until you've looked at the normal tissue. And I think for every cancer gene, we need to look at the normal tissue to know whether it's neutral. It's actually only in cancers because it's in normal tissues and it's got nothing to do with becoming a cancer. It's protective or it's promoting cancer. This is a big, big insight. Dr. Jones, I'm really curious to know what is next on your agenda. Environment is very important. So in the esophagus, people have looked very hard to, for what explains huge differences in the rates of esophageal cancer. So if you go to parts of China, to Iran, or a huge belt that runs down from the Rift Valley in East Africa, right down the side of East Africa to South Africa, there is a very high incidence of esophageal cancer. Not the type that's common in Europe and the US, which is linked to obesity, that's called adenocarcinoma of the esophagus, but something called squamous cancer of the esophagus, which happens in the middle of the tissue of the organ. And that can occur in men and women equally, and even as young as in teenagers. And nobody knows why it's so high. And people did this huge study just published a couple of weeks ago where they looked at the changes in the DNA, so-called DNA signatures, which is a bit like a graffiti artist tag, you know, each agent that mutates DNA tags the DNA. And they thought, well, there must be an environmental agent that's causing these huge changes in rates of these cancers. They couldn't find one in the tumours. So, well, I think the environment might be expanding the clones by altering the competitive fitness of genes like P53. So environment and mutant clonal fitness and selection is a big deal. And we know that's true. So we've looked, for example, in the skin, most of the P53 mutant clones that we carry on our skin are not caused by new mutations. They're caused by going out in the sun for half an hour at lunchtime is enough to make the clones you already have grow more. So it's not new mutations, it's clones you already have growing exponentially from little doses. A CT scan is probably enough to make the clones in your esophagus grow more. We've shown that. What other, you know, environment is, is a huge factor in altering clonal fitness. I have just one last question. What do you do for fun in your spare time? So I do music. I play the recorder, which is a really sad uh, instrument for, at school, but it's actually a really fun early music instrument. I do rowing. I, I skull with a couple, with actually three other old men in a quadruple skull. Um, I enjoy bringing up an 11 year old daughter very much. So that's what I do. Wonderful. Uh, thank you very much again, Dr. Jones, for joining us today and for this wonderful uh, discussion. We, we could talk for hours and hours mm -hmm. about this concept. It's amazing and it's fascinating. Are you left with more thoughts or questions after listening to a science rehash episode? 
Join us on Twitter at Science Rehashed and leave your comments, thoughts, questions, etc. on the episode Twitter thread to rehash this episode using hashtag SREpisodeRehash. Wow, that was such an interesting interview. We definitely started 2022 off in the best possible way, Leila. Absolutely, Mehdi. I have learned so much about the rules that govern normal cell behavior and how important it is to fully understand them in order to understand abnormal cell development. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Science Rehashed. See you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Kiara Maffei, edited by Vesna Ilieska, and mixed by Aaron Troutman. The cover art for this episode was created by our creative director, Emma Brand. We would also like to thank the whole team of Science Rehashed, as well as Dr. Rudy Tansy for providing us with the music for our intro.